Welcome to another edition of Hit the Lights podcast. I've got a very special guest with me today, uh, a familiar voice, Dave Austin. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Gary. Good to be with you. Yeah, and no, thank you very much for for joining me. Obviously, many many people will obviously recognise yourself probably over the years with with much of the the content and things that you've produced over the years, but. Um, it'd be great if you could just tell us about your route into the electrical industry and, and where your origins came from. Yeah, well, it's a, it's not a traditional route in the sense of, uh, you know, training as an apprentice, let's say, and uh, being on the tools and working my way through the industry in that sense, because my uh, electrical background is in the BBC as a engineer at the BBC. Uh, so I we could we can we can divert our way through a couple of early career moves that were slightly um, erroneous and odd, uh, which took me via the police, the RAF, and being a projectionist in a film theatre. So those all were right. all sort of you know you're you're welcome to prod, but no, I, I was going to say yeah, I was going <laughs> to say that, that, that there's some diversity in there. What 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 didn't work out with those? Just not for you. Um, yeah, I, my my big thing as a kid, there, there were two things I really wanted to do. One was to be a surgeon, uh, which was likely to never happen. Uh, well, there was possibly three. The other was the stage. I always loved the stage. Uh, and the third one was to be a, a sound engineer for the BBC. And that was the one that seemed the most likely. So I flirted with acting. I considered acting college and such like, but I eventually... When I was at school, my my whole focus went on to the BBC and I contacted them when I was younger and said, what do you need? And they said, A-level physics, blah, blah, blah. So I'd, I just set my course firmly on that particular route. And it was all working well until I got to the age with the qualifications and they weren't recruiting. And I suddenly had this ridiculous situation that I'd pinned everything on one track. And then the track had a gate that said no entry. So I had to make a pretty swift decision because my parents at the time were just about to relocate uh, to London from the Midlands where I grew up. And so I either went with them uh, or I had to find something to do. And and you may consider it bizarre, but I joined the police um, because at the time my girlfriend was his father was a police police officer. And I, I just I'd always quite liked the police. And I thought, well, let's give it a go. So I joined Northamptonshire Police and spent two and two and a bit years as a copper. But I rapidly realised that that was none of the directions I wanted to really go in. Great, great life. Um, And I think if I'd stuck it, the way the world would have gone in the police with the police at that time, there was no real police presence on the telly, unlike today, where every time you turn on, there's a copper doing something. Mm. In those days, the police weren't featured in the media and crime watch was a, a glint in the eye and they, they used to just do this um a couple of programs there, there was crime watch was happening but there were a few other bits sure taylor was doing a thing called police five uh, none of nobody listening under 50 will remember that uh, <laughs> and those programs as they developed could have been an area that i would have been interested in in other words the police and the media but anyway i got out and uh, I was with a guy, I was in digs with a guy who wanted to become a fighter pilot. And he went off to the RAF and he asked me to drive him over to the careers office because he didn't have a car at the time. I went over to the RAF recruiting office and <laughs> there, there were two elements there. One was that they did telecommunications training. And I thought, wow, that would be a great way to get in the BBC if I got trained up in telecommunications. And the other one, there was a really tasty waft doing the recruiting. 
And mm-hmm. those two elements pulled me into the RAF, uh, where I happily for the country only stayed six weeks. It was a massive mistake, stupid, stupid mistake. I resigned for the belief, went to the RAF, left the RAF, and I was now cast out onto the market, um, having had two careers. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and nothing to show. So that's that was the when I say it was a right old mess and some dead ends. It was because I was just desperately prodding away, trying to find some way into the industry I really wanted to get into. And uh, I did that in the end by taking a job as a runner in a post production company in the in the West End. I, I was far too old for it. It was far too lowly paid, but I took it and spent three years absolutely sucking in all the technical stuff. So that when I eventually went to the BBC, I think I was 23 when that happened, I I was just taken in with open arms and became an engineer for the BBC uh, and got where I wanted to go. And I spent many years enjoying life in the BBC, worked at the, I trained at the Engineering Training Centre in Wood Norton down at Evesham, and then spent two years doing my, effectively my apprenticeship. It's not called an apprenticeship, but it's, it's on-the-job training for the BBC till I got my substantive grade. Uh, working in the London control room. And then against all possible odds, I I left Um, because John Burt at the time was radically changing the BBC and they were rationalising the departments and also technology was moving in and manpower was needed less. So they offered all sorts of fabulous opportunities within the organisation for people to relocate. And I decided local radio production would be where I'd go. So I I hopped ship completely from where I'd intended to be, went off and became a a producer and presenter on a local radio station. Uh, And that brings us sort of to where I joined the electrical business, because as one of my presentation roles, a local video company, Navigator Productions, then called Team Projects, actually based in Rochester, were recruiting for a new presenter for their technical stuff. And I went along to the audition and I got the job and presented quite a few videos for them as a complete freelance, just turning up at the studio and presenting. I did one called Mighty Motors uh, and and various other scripts we did. I can't rightly remember them now, but that became that the output from that became what people now know as the Learning Lounge, because in 2005, those original ones were distributed on VHS cassette and latterly on DVD. And then in about 2005, Terry and Neil, who own Navigator Productions and the Learning Lounge, bought the company from its original owner, Tom, and they digitized the entire content. And they were well ahead of the game here. They had the first online delivery platform that I know of, seriously good platform that could deliver training content to colleges. And so the videos that I was presenting for them were going out to colleges all over the country. They had well over 100 colleges signed up uh, and they would receive huge, great box loads of VHS cassettes covering all the content of the various courses they were teaching. And that's where we were. That's all we did uh, was to make training content for colleges. Uh, And then it became the learning lounge and it became the streamed resource. So that that's how I got to be the presenter Dave Austin that a lot of people will have gone through their apprenticeship with college lecturers will have used in their in their sessions and it's sort of continued from there really mm. no, so obviously there's there's different skill sets isn't there coming from 
almost being an engineer, um, you know, in the sense that, you know, you're working day to day solving problems, probably working under, I imagine, with the BBC, quite a lot of time pressure and constraints. Then going into the uh, the front camera facing role um, that, you, that you've eventually done. It, what was what was that like in that transition? Did you find that um, quite a, a natural transition? Obviously, you spoke about acting. So presenting yeah. was something that came naturally for you. Yes, it did come naturally. I mean, when I was at school, I I was on stage constantly. And when I was quite a lot younger, I did hospital radio, did the usual disco stuff, wedding disco. So, I mean, I was very happy in front of a crowd, very happy in front of an audience. And that the benefit for me, when I got my first gig on local radio, because the first professional work I did was on BBC Radio Kent, I'd presented on other stations, but the first professional contract where I turned up and got was given some money to speak on the radio was for BBC Radio Kent and those programs which which I know other people other broadcasters found really traumatic their first program when you sit in front of a live desk and you've got to drive the show and talk and hit the news and do the travel and all that stuff for me having spent years working with the BBC technical equipment and operating kit for myself anyway because I'm a bit of a kit junkie I just found that really easy. I had no problems with the technology. So I could put 95% of my brain power into what I was actually saying. And I just love being on live radio. I mean, I love live television as well. I think live anything is just brilliant. And um, so I, I don't get nervous. I mean, I get apprehension like anybody does about to do something that might challenge them. But fundamentally, I don't get nervous. I just love it to bits. I'm walking in front of a live audience or a live television camera. I mean, we've been filming um, most of this week. We've been filming a whole new series of films for the Electrical Distributors Association. And I've been fronting those along with a couple of others from the industry. Gary Parker has been doing it. Uh, And we, you know, I stand in front of that camera for four or five hours a day reading quite complex autocue stuff but understanding it, but you do need it on a script. Otherwise, it gets very difficult to compress stuff into a reasonable form. And I find that a very relaxing place to be. I love it. So I think loving something is important. I've loved everything I've done, really. I've been incredibly lucky that I just do the things I like doing and happen to get paid for them. That's, that's the dream, isn't it? When we all, when we, when we all get employed. <laughs> I sometimes have to pinch myself. You know, I'm sitting where I'm talking to you now is my studio. I've got a studio at home where I edit and uh, record. I've got a voice booth. I do voice work here. Some of the stuff I do for Navigator, I actually record here in front of my own green screen. So I've, I'm surrounded by the environment that I love, the technical environment I love with Kit. And the end result is, seems to be happily, and I say this with humbly, it seems to be a product that people relate to and enjoy. I mean, I, I get lovely feedback from people when I go out and around the country and I speak to engineers and I speak to lecturers, particularly college lecturers who have used our stuff. They seem very complimentary, you know, and I, I don't seem to get a lot of hate stuff, which is really nice. Yeah, really nice. It's a this world, you can expect it. Do you get many opportunities to go to colleges and and do that kind of live um, presentations? And uh... I mean, I always would if I was asked. We we Terry got a request. Our, uh, Terry Brown from Navigator got a request um, a few years ago from a college, and we uh, we went for a visit to the college. We had a look around and met the students, and it was it was funny because they hadn't been told that I was coming, 
And so we walked into the classroom where they were doing a session. And I, all three of us filed in quietly while it was going on and stood at the side of the thing, leaning against the wall. And they were watching a video of me. <laughs> and it was one of those wonderful double take moments where I saw one of them look at the screen and then look to the right and then look back to the screen and look to the right again. <laughs> this, this amazing sensation of what? <laughs> because he's in the room with us. And so I do get out and about when I can. The ones, the most interesting times lately have been elixirs. And, you know, I've just done this whole uh, series with Darren, uh, the CEF Tech Talks. Mm. Uh, and going to those things where you're there just to present on the regs or whatever it might be. And people walk in the room and do do the double take thing, because, you know, if you're a lecturer or you've been an electrician and you've been watching Learning Lounge product or seeing me on YouTube, when you see the person in real life, it happens to me, too. When I see people, I'm going to use the word famous. I, I don't think I'm very famous, but you know what I mean? And a, pro, mm. a person with a public profile, when you see them in the flesh, there's something fascinating about looking at them. And what I notice, and I've talked to other people who have some sort of profile about this, that people tend to try and creep around the side and look at the side of you. <laughs> I, I know, I really weird. I I just notice that they're edging round to the side and they're sort of looking at the back of my head and my ear because they they don't see that bit and I think they just want to fill in. <laughs> <laughs> they just want to fill in, you know, the whole picture. Yeah. Um, which I think is lovely and, and very funny and I love it. You know, when when people do acknowledge that they've grown up watching me, it's it's just brilliant and what a lovely feeling that you know I've been with somebody who's been in their lives for years and uh, hopefully help them uh, with with what they've been studying. Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think my personal recollection of yourself, uh, I think it was around the 17th edition. So around 2008. Eight, yeah, that's right. Um, well, that's, and I, that was the, the first uh, high profile thing. With, I did that with Tony, didn't I? We did. Yes. Uh, yeah. We did it was a DVD with Tony Cable. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was. Um, yeah, I think I. I not long started my apprenticeship and i think our, our company brought everyone in and put some of your uh, vhs's on at the time and yeah. tried to educate us all on the changes and stuff like that i don't know how much of it sank in at the time but um yeah no that that was certainly my first experience how, how did that that come about then that was all through the learning lounge doing well, those videos with tony yes yeah, so the learning lounge it's sort of established itself quite quickly. Terry and Neil, you know, I'm going to say it again. I think they deserve the credit um, because in this Internet world where lots of very good stuff is going up onto YouTube and podcasts like yourself, you know, people can now put stuff out there quite easily. But back in 2005, when they started the Learning Lounge as a digital product, it was quite rare. Bandwidths were low. Computers were slow. It was not an easy way to study. And they, Neil built the Learning Lounge so that it could deliver video content. There was the learning management system in the background that the lecturers could use. It was a really advanced piece of kit. And so we very quickly, this, that little team of people, and, it, I, and I remember was just a freelance. I'm not a member of that company. I'm just somebody that they buy in as a presenter, although they're long-term friends and I love them to bits. But, but that, that was the relationship then. So... I'd been doing quite a lot of work. I remember that period. And they were approached by the NIC EIC to produce the 18th edition content for the for, uh, sorry, the 17th edition content when, when it all changed in 2008. 
And so the NIC said they wanted to use me, uh, but they wanted their own man in there. So they put Tony in. And so Tony and I worked together, I think, pretty much for the first time. Then we may have done one other video on inspection and testing before that, I think, but I, I'm a bit vague on that one. But we certainly got together. The NIC guys, along with Terry, wrote that script. And then Tony and I were sort of script supervisors, as it were. We would, we would then turn the techie into voice content because that's the way it sort of works. Um, we, we tend to write a script in a very purist form, so we'll write it almost like the regs in, in paragraphs. And then I take the script and I turn that into something which can be said and 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 transmit, because as you're very well aware, the written word just read out sounds terrible. You, you have to put it into some sort of language that, that works when spoken. So I'm I largely my role in the whole business is to sort of script edit and uh, and make it work and also sometimes a bridge quite technical stuff down to something which is more digestible uh, so that it just doesn't overwhelm the audience because I mean, there's mm. such a volume of information in these films i mean the, the thing about there's two ways of presenting video and audio content you can you can just freelance it in front of a phone and at I'm not knocking anybody that does because I watch some very, very good guys in their vans who get the phone out and they just literally talk you through a job. And it can be a most incredible way to learn about EV installation, something like that. But what if you want to really, really streamline the way you speak, you've got to spend a bit of time thinking ahead of how this is going to be phrased, how it's going to work, how cutaways are going to help with this thing so where we go with our scripts is we we always script everything we hardly ever do something just ad lib to camera unless it's maybe a quick trail or something mm. we'll always spend a long time i mean hours in pre-production planning the whole thing terry brown is a real stickler for detail he will he will go through everything and look for all the shots he needs and how it's going to be captured you know we use phones we phones are great for just grabbing a shot behind a consumer unit or whatever just if you want to get into a tight shot you can use a phone where you can't use a big pro camera so we're quite happy to embrace all this stuff and, and i've said that we need to be conscious of moving ourselves down the road into this more naturalistic style because that's what people are sort of expecting but i don't think we'll ever let go of trying to write crisp technical scripts which really tell the story well in a condensed form um that's going to to be our thing i think that's where we like to be in terms of like the technical content then and and that technical aspect obviously you mentioned like necessarily reading autocues but i'm sure at some point there was a, a turning of the tide where you obviously you've come to learn all of this stuff you now probably in in great detail understand the the regulations how how has that kind of fitted in with your, yeah. your working well, i tell you it came about in a in a bizarre way uh, uh, i can't give you dates one of my uh, least um, impressive features is my memory uh and i just can't remember when things happened but it was it would be some time back and we were doing i was doing something for sparks magazine and we were going along to an exhibition and and I was going to judge some competitions and do a few bits and bobs on stage. And then we had a stand there and we were talking about the learning lounge. And 
so I'm there and it's lovely and guys are coming up and shaking my hand and having selfies and all that sort of stuff and then a lecturer came over to me with two young lads and they were obviously had been g'd up you know they're now going to meet Dave Austin very exciting mm. so the lecturer said guys guys you know here's Dave and one of them said to me how long have you been an electrician now I haven't been an electrician as such not an electrician as we know the form so I just jokingly said, oh, I'm not an electrician. I just read what's on the script. Now, that's not true at all in the sense that I know an awful lot more than that. But that's that was my jokey approach. Mm. And that that face just fell. His face fell. You know, the credibility just went straight out the window. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, oh, yeah, I've got to be really cautious about how I deal with this, because um, I, I I've now got I've taken all my exams, EV qualifications 18th edition all the all the various bits and bobs i took them i got decent marks in them i understand the theory and i spend more time i suspect studying and dissecting the regs than most day-by-day sparks because my role in this business is not actually to go out and pull cables and install which i have done but it's not my day-to-day thing i don't do that like most people i speak to my job is to take the regulations and the necessary information to do that job well and to put it across and convey it. And you mentioned earlier that there are two elements to my world, which is that there's the technical side and then there's the presenting side. And I think if you draw a Venn diagram of what you need to do what I do, you need as big a lump of Venn diagram as a presenter as you do as a technician. There's an awful lot of people, and I've been very kind about people doing stuff on YouTube there's an awful lot of very bad presentation out on YouTube as well and that's a shame because those people know their stuff but they aren't able in my opinion anyway to convey it well and engage people and so I see my role as the ability to engage and convey information rather than to be the technical guru actually Um, so I stay across the regs I stay across the changes I've got in my orbit some extremely qualified people who do the guys at the IET, Gary, my colleague Gary, Darren, I've just been working with. All these guys are my day-to-day chat guys. So we chew through subjects, we ask questions, we investigate, we explore. Darren and I are just in the process of preparing the next series of Tech Talks for the CEF. And we're going deep into 712. We're looking at PV installation. We're going to do a PV installation. We're going to try and take a PV installation on stage with us and try and do it in front of the audience. So we're, we are, whereas, whereas a, a, a jobbing Sparks will have a wide breadth of knowledge and may specialize in industrial, all sorts of different areas, I will focus on the bit that I'm doing in the next series of presentations and get those honed to a level. So that's where I am. I, to answer your question, I am technically qualified on paper and in knowledge terms, but it's it's not it's not a practical knowledge. Does that make sense, Gary? No, de- no, it's, definitely. It's, it's, it's a theoretical knowledge for the purposes of conveying. That's that's why I gain the knowledge, and it's a different type of knowledge. It's it's not always completely practically useful because there'll be bits that I don't know because I haven't bothered to bone up on that because I'm not presenting on it in the next week. So, you know, sure. it's, it's it's sporadic. 
Um, but, you know, if you ask me to wire up a consumer unit or um, pull some cables or, uh, yeah, I can do that. I mean, there are, there are so many, uh, you know, not just limiting it to the electrical industry, but design engineers who, you know, um, yeah, who, who never go through what a traditional apprenticeship and yeah. have to and have to learn it through the career of probably people shouting at them to say that didn't work. No, you're, well, you're right. And, and in fact, a lot of the people in our audiences, I keep referring to the most recent experiences, this last series of Tech Talking, we've just done over 6,000 people in our 32 events. And talking to them afterwards, I mean, the, the range of people, the consultants that are there, uh, yeah, the designers that are there, people that are peripheral. I mean, I also present for the Electrical Safety Network, the Lantai Promoted Electrical Safety Network, which is concerning itself more with uh, people who commission uh, facilities managers, that sort of thing. So we don't in those audiences, there often are qualified electricians because people ask who's, who's an electrician. Often there aren't. Often there are people that really wouldn't be able to wire up a 13 amp plug. It, it, it's, it simply is the case that these people need to know about electrical. Um, and I've just written the course. Well, in fact, I mean, we're, we're currently revising the question bank um, for the related discipline card uh, exam because we wrote the course to support that particular qualification. Uh, and the, uh, the the ECA, isn't it? Yeah. And they, we wrote a course to support it. Uh, the question bank has proved to be slightly out of alignment, really, with the syllabus, we feel. So we uh, put together a working group. And in fact, just before we spoke today, I was going through the questions and um, putting in some new questions for that. So and that's, again, a related discipline. It's not it's not a hardcore electrician. These are sound engineers, cable installers who who come into the orbit of electrical environments, need to know about electrical safety, have to have an idea about safe isolation procedure. But but they aren't electricians. Mm. So, you know, I, yeah, I cross over into all sorts of worlds in that sense. Yeah. I mean, you, one of the things you mentioned, obviously, is that oh, not everyone has the, the presenter skill set. And, you know, I, obviously, I include myself in that as well as fairly new to this. Well, you're doing all right. You're doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so am I right? You also do coaching? Yes, I do. Yeah. I, so, well, yes. Yeah. It's a whole whole different track, really. Yeah. This, no, I, so what I was my question I was going to kind of get to was, if you had, say, a group of people in, in that field where the presenting isn't quite right without probably doing yourself out of, of good money, <laughs> have you got any tips? Um, yes, actually, I have. I, I When I started doing presentation skills, presentation coaching years back, uh, I was working with a very dear friend called Tony Crawford. And we, we inherited effectively a course uh, that had been put together by a guy called Paul Swan, who was a real top end coach. And I went through the Paul Swan coaching thing years and years and years ago from Paul himself, absolute master of it. And then I ended up presenting the Paul Swan course uh, with Tony for a company called Crawford Communications. And we did loads and loads of different courses. And the that course was quite, it was very good and very useful, but it was sort of a bit, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. And I, I've moved over the years. I've moved away from that approach. When I work with people, and I, my, I tend to work with people like chief executives before their keynote speech or that sort of thing, usually a big live audience thing, occasionally telly stuff, 
more often than not, it's, it's going to be a live presentation. And my message now is, you've got to find you. You've got to find you on the platform. Everybody in the pub with the family, chatting to mates, has a skill. Yeah, we've all got friends who've got different ways of being entertaining, engaging, whatever. That's the bit they've got to lift out of the common every day and move into the conference hall, the meeting, whatever it might be they're presenting to. They haven't got to try and be something else because audiences are brilliant at noticing when somebody is uncomfortable, self-conscious, embarrassed, and immediately that transmits to the audience. And if you think of all the good presenters, you know, everybody that you've sat in front of and thought, wow, he or she is really good. The thing that they've done to you is they've made you feel confident that they're happy to be there. If you could transmit to an audience that you're happy to be there and you've got some great stuff for them and it's going to be fun, they will love you forever. And even if things start to go a bit wrong, as long as you keep that smile and just sort of keep moving on and keep it moving along, they will stay with you. But the day you walk on the stage and go, I'm terribly sorry, I didn't have time to prepare my slide deck or the first slide isn't very good or I'm sorry, the text is too small and that you can't read it. Immediately, the audience starts to think, mm, this is going to be a bit tough. And straight away, their confidence in you drops because your only job as a presenter is to make the audience feel comfortable and engage them. It's the only job. You can talk guff, frankly. They'll love you. As long as <laughs> it's true, isn't it? If you just think about personal experiences where you've sat in an audience and the, the presenter has in some way engaged you. Now, I have a principle that within the first 30 seconds when I'm in front of anybody, I will try and get a reaction. So it's a hand up. It's a question. It's a how, have you, how are you today? Whatever it might be, get a, get a reaction. Break the glass. The glass wall goes. So now I'm, I'm with you. I'm not standing in front of you. I'm with you. I'm one of you. And as soon as you do that, they start to relax. And so my advice, the nutshell advice is you've got to find the presenter in you. You may not like it. You may look in the mirror and say, I don't like being like that. I want to be like that person or that person. Bad luck, because you never will be. There's only one person in the world that can present it like you, and that's you. And if you can find that place. And so when I do work with people, all we do is work on finding them that place and then getting them comfortable in that place. And once they are, they fly, absolutely fly. So, yeah, that's it. No, great advice. Great advice. Obviously, we, we've touched on um, a couple in, in a couple of instances about the CEF tech talks um, that you've been doing with Darren Staniforth. Yeah. Um, you can, obviously, I've, I've listened to a few of your, your audio podcasts as well now. So just to kind of let everyone know that that's out there. But could you tell us a little bit about what, you, what you've been doing with that? Yes, it, it's quite exciting, really, because Darren, Darren and I have been mates for years. And we did when Tony Cable retired. Dear old Tony. We love Tony. Let's say let's say RIP Tony, because he's a great guy. When he retired in 2018, the NIC were trying to recruit somebody to replace him because he was obviously Darren's buddy out on the road. And they called me in to say, would I help with the selection process? And would I then help them work with whoever came in on presentation skills? And so we we spent a couple of days um, auditioning and watching people. And at the end of those two days, I said, there is nobody here that you can put up in front of an audience without an awful lot of work. So 
they were in a bit of a squeeze because they'd got quite a series of um, tech talks, NIC tech talks, booked. And there was only Darren. And so they just said to me, look, will you take a, a short term contract and come and do the tech talks with Darren? So at least he's got somebody there on stage with him. So I did. And we we did about nine months of tech talks together and had great fun. I've got huge respect for Darren. He's a brilliant presenter and very, very good. If, if ever there was an example of somebody engaging people with themselves, it's Darren. Because if you've ever seen that man in front of an audience, you see exactly what you see when you're in the bar that night. It's Darren. So uh, we had a great time together. And then Jake Green, who was already in the wings and being drawn through the engineer system at the NIC, uh, was was getting more and more confidence. And so at the end of my time, I stepped away. Jake stepped in and Darren and Jake became the team. Uh, and so that was it, really. And I didn't see any more of the NIC for quite a while. And then when Darren moved to CEF, I got a phone call couple of months three about december december last year it was from him saying mate 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 i've got this new thing to do and i want to put tech talks on and uh and i want it to be with you so immediately i was thrilled by that that was a great idea so we got together and started planning them and we've looked that the whole idea really was to to position uh, an information place because actually although we've got the internet absolutely chocker full of stuff that you can watch there was very little stuff going on live that you could go and stand in a room or sit in a room and watch somebody giving you the lowdown um those tech talks that nic used to do had sort of disappeared off the map um and there were the elexes and um, i think napit are doing some great work in the presentation forum they're putting on some great stuff so there are people out there doing it but we wanted to take something that was high quality uh, obviously, the regs, the Second Amendment were, was the key, the big one. Uh, EV, we thought, was very, very relevant. Uh, we wanted to bring on some information about some changes. So the CO legislation changes, which are pretty massive, actually, and will make a huge difference to the rental sector. So we did some stuff on the CO changes. Uh, and also, we took, took, took a look at battery storage, uh, because that is the next big area, I think, that people have got to start turning to. With the energy, the way it's going, if you can... If you can do some battery storage, certainly from your PV, and then use it later on at night so you're not drawing on the grid, it's going to be a big thing. So those were the areas we took on that first round. Just looked at the things which sort of tied in with Chapter 82, because that's the uh, prosumer, prosumer uh, electrical installations are all going to be the big thing. And that's got battery involved and PV and EV. So we tried to tie all that together. And I think we I think we put together quite an exciting three hours. Actually, I was surprised at how engaged the audience stayed for the entire three hours of, of the span. It wasn't three hours nonstop, of course. There was a break in the middle. But um, it was a big old lump of stuff to digest. And, and there seemed to be a really good reaction. I mean, the feedback was just fantastic we got from that. Um, and they, so, were, they were they were well attended post-pandemic and all that? Yeah, they were well attended. Um, really well attended. And we we had a actually we had a target of 4000 that was when we set out darren said you know if we can if we can nail 4000 then we'll have done well so we actually ended up 6000 plus attended um, all 32 events and then we've just just recently done a live mop-up webinar which uh, picked up another few hundred uh, and uh, so hopefully the message has gone out along across the industry and i i think you know we we look forward to the second round being 
even more successful because hopefully we've now established a little bit of a, a rhythm there and a bit of a brand and we, we hope we get some repeat visits because they're going to be through the autumn starting in october going right through to next february we'll be doing another i think it's another 27 uh, going around the same some of the same locations and some newer ones some that we didn't feel worked too well we noticed that the coastal locations obviously were difficult because where you've got somewhere inland people can come from all directions when it's a coastal thing they can only come from unless they want to come by boat they can only actually come, <laughs> yeah you know from inland to the coast so we, we may not be going to more of the coastal locations and we keep more to the central inland locations and, and uh, doing like that but uh, that that was that was the ethos we wanted to just take a live free message to people and say come along sit down have a bacon roll or an egg bap and have a listen and have a talk and ask some questions and get some information and of course supported by the IET so in all well all of them had an IET presence occasionally it was Mark Coles on video because we just couldn't get the guys I mean two of our days were JPL 64 meetings well you can't really ask the IET to give up its engineers when they're supposed to be in the JPL meeting mm. so we knew that there were days when we spoke to Mark beforehand we knew there were days that they simply wouldn't make but a lot of them had a live IET engineer in the room as well as Mark on video and that worked incredibly well and I think that did really good for the IET because you know there are often thought of as a bunch of stuffed shirts sitting in darkened rooms and the guys that came out just showed how much knowledge they have and how aware they are of the market and of the of the business of electrical installation they're not just theoreticians these guys they're all ex-sparks usually I think they're all ex-sparks and and they just showed in the question and answer sessions just how much they relate to the problems of the market yeah no yeah I mean it, it is key isn't it I think these engaging events um like you say um to be happening again within the industry it was something pre pre-pandemic that was pretty much happening non-stop as the um as the means of you know getting your cpd um that it, everyone just seemed to like you say divert online and you know that's the the very reason this podcast kind of crept up was mm. through the pandemic and and turning it into you know q, q and a and and conversations just making it a lot more accessible because people were more prepared to be able to facilitate this sort of online interaction but um what 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 about the future um excites you in some of the in some of the maybe the regs you're reading the forecasting e even in your own personal journey what what's exciting you for the future well i'm <laughs> i am stupidly excited by the whole concept of prosumer electrical installations and i i, I know that in that sense i was most likely out of tune with quite a lot of the audience who who didn't i don't think they quite relate to it in the way that i do i mean i'm i'm not a young man anymore but i st always say that the future you know the I'm, I'm really excited about what's coming next i always i've always been excited about what's coming next and i think the idea that we can get to islanding mode that we can get ourselves away from this sucking power off, off of a central grid and local local generation local storage uh, there are definitely technical challenges to overcome uh, particularly in terms of the the way that we switch earth mode uh, when we go into island mode uh, and there's i know there's work being done as we speak on onto standards for that type of switching equipment 
And I had people say to me that we're still trying to source the right kit to be able to do that. To sort of, so we've got the grid providing as a backup, and then we go to island mode. We've got to switch everything, including the earthing conduct. So th these are challenges which we've got to work on and get right. But once you start to think about communities, relatively large communities, who could be completely isolated from the grid if they choose to be, with I'm I'm thinking battery storage buildings. Because one of the issues with battery storage, of course, where do you put the batteries? Mm. And we go through, we worked our way through the suggestions that are in the code of practice, the IT code of practice on battery storage. And, you know, there are a lot of places where batteries just don't really work because of temperature differentials. Then they're not they're not a fire risk as such. But of course, any high energy source, it has to be treated with some care. So you don't want to put them just old any old where. Uh, so where you put your batteries is quite a challenge. Um, obviously the the cabling is different and when we then we started to move into the whole area of hybrid inverters so we're storing directly off the pv we're not going through um the power power uh, conversion equipment so we're not going ac to dc to dc to ac to ac to dc and all the losses involved in that and they are bigger than perhaps we might have imagined those losses if you keep whipping backwards and forwards from ac to dc mm. so then we go down the whole road of dc final circuits why not because so much of what we use in our our houses is dc anyway so you, mm. we, if you think think of the think of the changes you've got you come off a, a solar panel ac you go through power for conversion equipment or inverter into the battery in DC, then you come off the battery in DC and convert it back to AC, then you plug something into the wall and convert it back to DC. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it absolutely makes no sense, does it? So when you when you look at that and you see the potential for DC final circuits, and we know, I know that the IET is looking at that very seriously, even as closely possibly as Amendment 3 that we'll start to see mention of DC final circuits mm. in the regs. This is a whole new world. And I think to be an electrician right now with smart homes and all the tech that you've got to get your head around, it's such an exciting place to be. Such an exciting place. Mm. Uh, it, it's, 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 where, it's where the world is. It's electrical, isn't it? I mean, we, we are, any of us in the electrical business are at the forefront of where humanity is going because we're going to get away from the whole dirty fossil fuels, ideally, uh, and everything will become clean electric. Mind you, sorry, I just dropped a pencil. There's a bloke in Bradford who doesn't agree with me. And All right. <laughs> Why is that? I'm just about to do a very dodgy accent, so forgive me, anybody listening. In, in, I, I do generic accents, I do. Uh, I, I came out of the talk. I'd just done a, a session on um, PV, uh, and I get very excited about... Uh, sorry, yeah, ba uh, EV, EV. I get very excited about EV and EV charging. And... Uh, he came up, he said, yeah, it won't last, you know. I said, sorry. He said, I'll give it 10 years, mate. 10 years. That's all it's got. It'll be gone. Yeah. Hydrogen. That's the way it's going to go. Hydrogen. And we had a really interesting conversation. And he wasn't in any way a negative person. He was just firmly of the opinion that this big push we're doing on battery storage and, and battery vehicles is a complete dead end. And that hydrogen will become the dominant propulsive force. Whether that's hydrogen to generate electricity to charge a battery in a or whether it's actually hydrogen to propel the vehicle, he was firmly of the opinion that's the way that humanity needs to go. Mm. And it was a great moment for me because I, I stepped back and I thought, yes, you know what? I mustn't get too locked in to any particular idea because who knows? Who knows? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. 
we uh, I had a recent conversation, obviously, with um, Adam Chapman of Heat Geek, mm-hmm. and, and we we obviously spoke about hydrogen boilers. Yeah. Um, obviously, I've been reading up lately um, about the nuclear um, options and how that's created, obviously, which is uh, hydrogen based as well. Yeah, no, I, I've even well, heard in the in the past about hydrogen cars, but yeah. Well, in in Australia and Asia, hydrogen is sort of becoming the leader. So the other side of the world, there's almost this different opinion, which is that they are thinking that's the technology. And certainly in in Asia, there are a lot of cars already that are running perfectly well on hydrogen. So, I mean, the one advantage that hydrogen would have brought or would bring, should we embrace it, is that you could almost without any effort, empty the fuel out of the tanks underneath all the petrol stations and fill them with hydrogen. Mm. And, and fuel the cars. You don't need to start installing a massive charging infrastructure. We can simply convert overnight almost to, and that's a bit simplistic, but you, you get my point, that the infrastructures, because you're pumping, a, a, you're pumping a, a fuel as opposed to electricity. So if all the cars suddenly became hydrogen consumers, we could feel that, fulfill that need with the infrastructure we have. So, I mean, it's back to the old problem that we seem to face, certainly in this country, is that we never seem to get this holistic, joined up, long term thinking. I don't want to go start romping down political lines because I don't think any of them do it. Uh, when you've got a five year parliament and the, the scrabble for votes at the end of every five years, we always seem to find ourselves just chasing the short game. And mm-hmm. nobody's got the kazumbas to actually say, let's plan 20, 50 years ahead and let's really work together and get this thing right. And only we could do that. It's more like a, a NASA program, isn't it? That needs yes. to be bigger than any government. Bigger than any government. Yeah, not funded by a government's decisions in the moment, but funded by a much bigger plan. I mean, the, the, it, it's frustrating. It's true for so many things that this this joined up big picture thinking, you know, we face it now with water. Gosh, do we face it with water? And now all the water companies as individual entities are scrabbling around trying to solve their problems independently. Now, I, I did see the other day that I think it was Anglian Water are putting a pipeline in to link up with another water company. But we've been, when I was at school, we were talking about putting in a national pipeline coming down the country from Scotland because where the water was in abundance to feed the south of England. I mean, that's, you know, I've, I've left school a few years ago, Gary, and, and that <laughs> hasn't even still, it's not even a plan yet. So the way that we don't attract, uh, deal with our problems in this big scale way is heartbreaking to me because humanity has got such ingenuity and technology and we waste so many billions of pounds patching up problems i mean look at you know we we, we could both of us start working down the whole business of uh, the lost neutral you know recirculating neutral currents the the grid breaking down over 400 incidents um, a year are we getting of this and we know that it's happening and and yet what are we doing about it how are we approaching it? They're asking us to put in supplementary earth electrodes because there's no solution. Yeah, patching the, yeah, the problem. Exactly. Yeah. Literally putting it's putting sticking plasters over gaping wounds right now. And every year that goes by, it will get worse and worse. So again, we haven't stepped back and said, okay, there's a problem. Let's deal with it as a country. Let's think how we use our resources and our ingenuity to solve this problem for all of us. But, you know, I, I could never be a politician because I couldn't take all the backslide. Back by <laughs> well, it's a uh, 
it's i mean it's a fa- it's a fantastic um call to arms so hopefully uh someone someone of significance is listening somewhere <laughs> maybe maybe uh in fact i i dropped into conversation with our local mp at a, a social event the, the other day and almost without wanting to i did get into the business of lost neutrals and and in fairness she doesn't understand uh, a word of it but she said it sounds like a problem, doesn't it? I said, <laughs> it is a problem, actually, and we really should be thinking about it. But, but, you know, I don't think anybody is. Well, I'm sure somebody is somewhere in a room. They're saying, what do we do about it? But um, yeah. I know there's there is more there is more awareness of it now. We were talking about it. We, we mentioned it in passing only really with relation to 722 and the fact that um, indent one of 722, you know, the, the mitigation um, for using um if you if you go, if you're going to use a, um, a pme supply there are only certain ways that you could use it and indent one was deleted in the second amendment uh, and that's the reason we mentioned loss neutrals when we were doing the tech tour but it was amazing how long that session started to become because once we addressed it and questions started to be asked in the room we realized this was a big subject that had to be embraced and so we sort of we let it fly and then let, let, let the guy from the IT Michael Peace from the IT particularly had a really good piece to say about that when he was in the room and um, we suddenly became aware just how seriously it is being taken by the the IT and by the industry and mm. uh, so that was a good I think a good piece of I'm not saying we we informed people in the room. I think they knew it existed, but I'm not sure that they all realised it was quite as big an issue as it seems to be becoming. Yeah, I, I've experienced this recently um, on the project I'm on with Tideway. We're, we're doing lots of different UKPN supplies in and, and noted on their one of their standard drawings for um, 100 amp three phase TNCS arrangements that they will still put in the earth electrodes locally. Um, you know, so that that in itself is again masking the plaster but um well you know that that may confuse an electrician if they're looking and they may come look and think hang on a minute maybe i've got a tns system not not the tncs that's written on the on the head itself yeah um well we've also heard that there's advice being gently eased out from a lot of the um dnos that really you should treat everything as pme No, yeah, definitely. Yeah, when I think they, that when they do a, a, a fix, sometimes, you know, you think you might have a TNS and that you're actually not. I think there is um, UK power guidance to that effect. Yeah, yeah definitely. Right. Yeah. Right. But um, they don't, it's not something that's it's, it's guidance, but it's not really being shouted about a lot, is it? No. Yeah, it, it's I see it in social media circles, but I'm sure probably on the wider tours that you're doing, um, maybe it isn't so readily known. No, that's right. I mean, there is that thing of where do we get our information from? Because there is so much that where do you go now as a as a as a source, a reliable source where you can say this is the truth, this is this is how it is, this is the story we need to understand. Because with the best of love to the internet, it isn't the most reliable source of information. And social media, whilst it can circulate information very quickly, it can distort information equally quickly. And once it's distorted, that message goes out. So finding those conduits of reliable information that's from the horse's mouth, that's factual and not dramatic, is the challenge. And to go back to your previous question about what was the purpose, what was the thinking about the tech talks, we wanted it to be that. We wanted it to be 
absolutely just let's give information, the right information, and, and let's make sure it's conveyed so that it's understood. That was that's the ethos and that's the one we'll try and stick to in the others. And to a certain extent, that applies with us at the Learning Lounge as well. We, we, we don't go for the dramatics. We tend to go for the facts, which aren't always as interesting. But it, hopefully we've got a reputation for you know, a high degree of accuracy. And that's that's our objective. Yeah. De definitely and I, I, I hope um in the next round of tech talks i'll, I'll endeavor to come out say hello and uh, try and sit in on some of the talks look forward to seeing you there yeah absolutely yeah definitely well it's been um a brilliant chat with you um you know it's been really insightful and you know some great conversation i do have one last question though that i ask of all my guests what's your favorite movie <laughs> I, <laughs> i'm always slightly embarrassed about this because um i do actually have a favorite movie and uh, I am not I'm not what one would call a movie buff in the sense that I, I, I like a good film. My wife will sit through a four hour Korean film where nothing happens, but maybe the local sheep dies and she thinks that's thrilling. <laughs> I, 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 I just cannot take a, a film that hasn't got a very clearly defined story. I'm not very good at um, jumping around in time because I get quite confused. <laughs> And I just like a really solid story. I'm a very simple mind when it comes to that sort of thing. And there's one film that whenever we turn on the, the TV, if it's half or two thirds or nearly finished, it will always be watched to the end. Mm. If it's on, it, we don't actually sit down and watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. But I mean, if it's it's one of those films that has the effect on me, it can make me cry. You're really worried. You're just... Yeah, I, I. What's he you know, talking about? You're you know, in my so head, disappointed. I'm going to tell you in my head. I I don't know why, but I had a sixth sense that I went to John Wayne somehow. Right. Well, maybe <laughs> that's very good thinking, but it's about as far off the mark as you can be. You're going to be so disappointed. I'm. I've, I've already built this thing up far too much. I'm afraid it's Notting Hill. Notting Hill. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a quite a funny film. That's quite a funny film. I I, I just find that's got every bit in it that i like i like the storyline i love hugh grant i think he's fantastic reese fans the character in notting hill is to die for i was gonna say he's very funny i remember that character yeah and the bit that gets me every time is and if people haven't watched it i think it's old enough now not to do spoiler alert right at the end so julie roberts hugh grant julie roberts massive film star hugh grant local bookshop owner nerdy they get together, they fall apart, they get together, they fall apart. It's the old typical formulaic love story. And then he tells her that he can't take it anymore and he's not going to be with her. And she goes supposedly back off to America without him. He then has a meeting with all his nerdy friends, including the wonderful Hugh Bonville as a very young actor, but brilliant, brilliant. And uh, realises he's made a huge mistake. And then she's doing a press conference at a hotel. And they have this mad dash through the London to get to the press conference. And he then stands up as one of the people in the press conference and asks the question. And, and it's just that whole, it's so formulaic and it's so trashy. But when he asks that question and then she replies and all the journalists realise that she's talking about him and they all turn around, I just think it's fab. And it makes me go every time. Yeah. Well, that's... <laughs> get, 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 get your tissues I'm well out. I'm welling up now, Gary. I'm welling up now. <laughs> well, it's been uh, brilliant chatting with you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's very enjoyable. Yeah, I love it. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening.